enter that narrow gate and deny ourselves and follow Jesus. So our gospel, our, our, our sermon text this morning, excuse me, our sermon text is Genesis 34. Genesis 34. So turning back in our Bibles to Genesis 34, there's also a sermon notes page for you uh, in the bulletin this morning if you'd like to follow along there. There's some uh, little uh, summary and some points. There's also the text if you'd like to just see that there in one place. Uh, and for our kids, there's a little kids notes page that you should have seen the way in as well. Uh, somebody texted me this morning about, uh, about uh, today, and I said, this is a very tough text, and I uh, uh, want you to know, uh, especially if you're visiting us, uh, this is a tough text. And so uh, this week I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just skip over Genesis 34 and, uh, you know, not, not offend and uh, not, uh, not say things that uh, maybe are, we're not ready to talk to our kids about. Uh, but the Bible is the Word of God, and... Uh, all of it is inspired. And uh, Paul tells us that all of the words of God, the inspired words of God, are therefore, because they're God's words, therefore they're profitable. Somehow, some way, some form, some fashion or another, every word that comes from the mouth of God is profitable for us and good for us. And after all, I'm a minister of the word. I'm, that's my title. Werbum uh, divini ministera, a minister of the word of God. And uh, not a minister of myself, and uh, not, a, not just a minister of you, to serve you. Uh, not a minister of my own opinions, but of the Word of God. And so, as a minister of the Word of God, uh, I'm compelled to read this passage this morning, uh, and uh, to preach it, and pray, and trust that you'll hear it. Amen? So, Genesis 34, as we continue through the story of, uh, of, of, uh, of Genesis, and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. We're in the Jacob story. He has uh, fled, and he's made his way back home, and he's there, he's met his brother, and we saw the power of the Holy Spirit last Sunday that unexpectedly Esau welcomed his brother, uh, and that shows us such, a, such an amazing thing that God can turn the hearts of even the hardest towards himself and to love, uh, to love his brother that he once wanted to hate. And then comes this story. Then comes this. Genesis 34 again. Now... Dinah, the daughter of Leah, this is one of Jacob's wives, this is the wife that he loves, uh, or uh, th- uh, this is the wife uh, uh, that, uh, that is his father-in-law uh, gave to him, tricked him into, into having. So now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that, the Lord, that, uh, that, that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. 
You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell, trade in it, get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised? For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every, uh, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor uh, Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For uh, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate uh, went, went to the gate of his city, listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate to, uh, of, of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the, the city while it fell secure, uh, felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the uh, the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves together... Uh, against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Well, to call this a strange story uh, is an understatement. Uh, Maybe you've read a strange story. Maybe... uh, You've seen a strange movie. A couple of us, uh, Sadie and Dax and, and, uh, and Dad, went for our summer uh, beginning of summer movie this week and saw uh, Doctor Strange, The Multiverse of Madness, and that was a strange movie. Um, maybe you've seen a strange play. Maybe you've uh, uh, you know, experienced some, something strange like this. What makes a story strange, of course, is it's odd characters, maybe it's confusing events, strange dialogue. It makes it weird, it makes it strange, Uh, it's unexpected, Uh, it's not exactly what uh, you thought you were sort of signing up for, what you spent money on. 
the characters are odd, uh, the events are confusing, then maybe there's too many things to recount. The whole thing was just weird. The story, the book, the play, the movie, whatever uh, it might be. So to call this a, a, a strange story is an understatement. And as we're in the story here of, of Jacob and the story of the patriarchs, and we're trying to see how the Bible points us all to Jesus and we come to this. And so to call this a difficult story is even more even more an understatement. We turn to this story. It's in the Bible. It's strange. It's difficult for us. It's not the kind of text that we maybe signed up for this morning. Maybe we thought we'd come this morning to a new church and check it out. And wow, Genesis 34. I never heard that one before. Uh, maybe you're a longtime member and you're thinking, you know, gosh, if Pastor Danny would only preach, you know, the John 3.16s, maybe uh, there'd be more people here if you didn't preach these kinds of stories. But here we are. Uh, it's, 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 it's difficult. It's, uh, it's hard. We can't, uh, we can't uh, mince words about it. Uh, there, there's no purpose for your life in this text, so to speak. Right? This is not sort of your, your, uh, your best life now. Your, this is not a health, wealth, prosperity passage. There's no dynamic application for victorious Christian living here. It's tough. It's difficult. It's strange, indeed. It doesn't fit the overall story that we thought we, that we were reading. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the forefathers, the heroes of the faith, pointing us to Jesus. Why would God include in his word a story like this? But just to remind you again of what Paul tells us, what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. And because of that, it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, uh, for, for, for training us in righteousness, that so the man of God, the person of God, might be uh, a, a godly and useful instrument in the world that God has made. And so it's difficult and strange, but here we go. Uh, and there are just two things I want us to think about this morning uh, and, and to focus on as we come to this passage. First of all, this is obviously a story of sin. It's obviously a story of sin, but I want to end up, and I'm going to, we'll probably spend most of our time on that, but uh, I want you also to see, as we think of it, as we see it, as it is a story of sin, it is a story of the Savior. It is a story of the Savior. It's a story of sin, though. That's, that's what we have in front of us. And uh, to, to see it as profitable, we've got to also see it not just as that, but also a story of the Savior. So uh, just note, first of all there, that, that, that sort of simple point, uh, that it's a story of sin. And we see, first of all, the, the sin of Shechem. Uh, we're confronted right at the beginning with the heinous sin of this man, Shechem. And notice what the story says. If you have a Bible there, you have the passage in front of you, uh, notice that as we've been going through Genesis, uh, this language should sound somewhat familiar. We haven't heard it in a while. We haven't heard these, the, these verbs that are used here clumped up together in one little sentence structure, but here they are. Notice what it says about Shechem. Verse number two. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her, humiliated her. Those first two, though, notice those again. Shechem saw Dinah and he seized her. He took her. He saw and he took. He saw and he seized. Dinah. Where else have we read those verbs 
In the same sentence, making a point to us in Genesis. Someone saw something, someone took something. In the garden. In the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw the fruit, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that it was uh, of, of, uh, of benefit for food and so forth. And she took what God said, do not eat. And she ate. And she gave to her husband who was right there with her. She saw and she sees. Genesis chapter 3. This is the language of the fall of the human race. This is the language of sin. To see and to seize something. And then later on it was used again. Do you remember where that was used again? There's, a, there's another strange story that we've looked at in Genesis up to this point. Earlier on, though, these same verbs were used. Remember in Genesis chapter 6? Uh, we had that, again, very strange, difficult story uh, of those sons of, uh, of, of Cain and those daughters of Seth and so forth. And, and the sons of Cain, they saw them and they took them as wives, as many as they wanted. It's the language of sin. To see and to seize. And so Moses, the author, using that here, it's what they did, but using those same exact verbs is drawing our minds back. Don't forget, this is what sinners do. They saw, they see, and they seize. They take for themselves. Something looks good and something maybe sounds good and we think that it's going to be pleasurable and fun and we take advantage of it and we join and jump into it. That's what he's saying. What did he see and sees? He saw and sees Dinah. He lay with her and humiliated her, meaning this was an egregious violation. God in the beginning made... Adam and Eve, he made male and female. That's what the Bible says. And God joined together because it was not good that the man should be alone. He made out of him, out of his side, a, a woman for him. And he joined them together. What God has joined, let not man tear asunder. That's God's plan and purpose for the world. But here we have this man taking... Seeing and taking, lusting, desiring, and taking for himself this young girl, this young woman, not his wife. He lay with her, humiliated her. In other words, what we would use in our term terminology today, he's a sexual predator. He rapes Dinah. And notice, then he loves her. Notice that. He sees what she looks like. He grabs her and he rapes her. And then we're told, after he humiliates her, oh, by the way, verse 3, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. That's a sexual predator. That's a monster who does these kinds of things. And so this is a story of sin, the sin of Shechem here. This Deviance, this sinner, he's, a, he's, a, he's full of lust, he rapes, he humiliates, he violates the way that God created the world. 
Why? Because he wanted to. That's why. Now, the sin of this ungodly Canaanite is bad. But don't forget good old Jacob, the patriarch, the father of the faithful, the father of Dinah. Notice his sin, his contribution to the story. The first thing he does after he leaves Esau, back in chapter 33, he leaves Esau uh, and he crosses that river and he goes back into the promised land. The first thing he does is to set up his camp a stone's throw away from the city of Shechem. And the story makes a point to us that he did this, this, uh, this, this uh, land that he pitched his tent, was in the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan. That should clue us in. This is, don't forget, this, this, this is supposed to be the people of God who are pilgrims in the land, the promised land, but he's now throwing his tents and his family and his children and his daughters and his wives just close to this city of Shechem in the land of Canaan. Now, what's the last time, or when's the last time in the book of Genesis as we've gone through it, the last time uh, uh, someone who was supposed to be a godly person uh, set up shop close to a land of sin? When was that? Lot. Lot. And don't forget in the story of Lot in Genesis 18 and 19, the first thing he did was he, he set up his tent outside the city and then eventually he kind of went in and out of the city and got to know them a little bit. And eventually what? He lived in the city. He had a house in the city. Sin always starts small. It always starts from a distance. We see someone. We see something. There's an opportunity. We have a little feeling in our, in our heart, in our soul uh, about someone or, or something. And, and we know deep down inside that it's sin and it's wrong. But we give in, and little by little, we make our way, and we end up living in Sodom. He sets up his tent outside the city, a stone's throw away from it, but it's yet still in the land of Cain. So what, right? Notice what happens next. He moves his family right near a pagan town, and lo and behold, his young daughter, most likely from all the clues in the text and the society, the culture, he's, she's probably about 16 years old in our story. Verse 1, she went out to see the women of the land, of the Canaanites, of the town, the land of Shechem. Well, how nice. She just needed some mentoring. That's all she needed. She just needed to, to see, you know, how, 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 how women should operate. She has. She has women who belong to the covenant. She has godly examples. Her very own mother and her very own uh, uh, stepmothers. She has godly people to look up to. But yet she goes to see these women in this land. She goes unaccompanied, notice, to a land known for its sexual licentiousness. 
Do you know how the Canaanites worshipped God, their god, Baal? Do you know what they did to worship Baal? They made women prostitutes and men had sex with prostitutes. That's how you worship Baal. So she goes to see the women of this town, of these Canaanites. Well, what do you think she's going to see? What's she going to find? So Jacob moves his family so close to a Canaanite town, he lets his daughter go into the town all by herself just to see the women of the land. It would be like us moving next to, you know, moving next to a strip club and you know, just letting our sons walk in and kind of see what it's like. Letting our daughter go and just kind of experience it for themselves. So you and I know that we live in a very highly sexualized culture. And it's been this way, well, it's been this way since the beginning, but in our culture, it's been this way for now many, many generations. And although our text is speaking to us in this context, it's still very important for us as we read these kinds of stories to always come back to the truths of what God says in his word about what is the true relationship between man and woman and true sexuality. We're told that it's okay to have sex before we're married. We're told that it's okay to have sex with anyone that we want, even before we're married. We're told that we can marry whomever we want. We're told, well, you can't deny yourself. You know, you've got you to live your truth and, and whatever makes you happy. That's what, that's what God wants. We're told daily that, we're, you know, some people are just born that way. We're told that it's okay. We're told that, you know, if I'm happy, that must be a, uh, that must be a feeling that comes from God. And God doesn't want me to be unhappy. I mean, did, did you hear the Bible that we read this morning? The God who is holy, holy, holy. The God who's a consuming fire, the God who can't even look upon sin. You think that God is going to be dictated to, uh, by you? Do you think that your feelings trump what God says in his word? Do we think that uh, what we want, our desires, our lusts, just like this Shechem, just like our ambiv- maybe even our ambivalence like Jacob, all the kinds of sexual sins that we find in the Bible, do we, do we think that we can engage in those things and we can tell God what's right and what's wrong? Now this happens, and this story is not meant to say God condones this, God allows this, God is cool with this. God's okay with, 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 with fornication, as the Bible calls it, sex before marriage. It's okay. You know, after all, Jacob's a patriarch, you know, and he kind of makes, makes amends and he kind of fixes the situation. No, this, this is here to show us sin. God hates sin. He has to. He's God. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. God hates sin. But God also loves sinners. He loves sinners so much that he gave his only son to die for them. And so we have here the sins of Shechem. We have here the, the sin of Jacob. You see that with his daughter going and She's there unaccompanied by herself. You see also, notice in verse 5, Jacob heard that he, had, uh, that he Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. His sons were all out, uh, were all out the field of the livestock. So Jacob held his peace. So, 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 so what did Jacob do when he heard that his daughter was raped? What did he do? Nothing. Nothing. Where's his outrage? Where's his righteous indignation? Where is a father protecting his child as he's called to do 
Where is his zeal for what God says? He does nothing. He's ambivalent towards his own daughter being raped. And he waits for his sons to come in from the field to deal with it. In other words, are, are are you seeing here how the patriarchs, as I've been telling you, the patriarchs are sinners like you and me. They're not holy icons. These are sinners. And one of the things that this, that this story illustrates for us is that God chooses to use sinners, not the holy. God chooses to use the imperfect, not the perfect, broken, not upright, and all put together. God uses sinners. He uses Jacob to bring Jesus to us. We'll come to that. And if you're ever tempted to think that God can't use you, whatever it is, helping somebody in need, encouraging someone who's brokenhearted, whether he can use me to lead someone to Jesus Christ, just remember Jacob, with all this sin, God still uses him to bring us the Lord. So we have the sins of Shechem, with the sin of Shechem, the, the the multiple sins of Jacob, the sins here of the sons. Notice, the sons. They are righteously indignant, right? They are consumed with passion that their father has done nothing when his own daughter, their sister, was raped. But their righteous indignation, in verse 7, turns into an unrighteous execution. We have to be righteously full of zeal, the Bible says. But at the same time, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So we've got to be full of the word of God and know what God says and live it out and be passionate for it. Stand up for it when we need to die to ourselves, live to Christ. But we've also got to not sin, right? We've also, not, we've also got to avoid sin. So... Righteous indignation, passion for the word that God has given us, can bubble over, can spill over into unrighteousness. And and here you see it. And it's interesting, isn't it, in verse 13? That they followed their father's example, answering Hamor and Shechem deceitfully. How is that that following Jacob's example? Just like what Esau, isn't it? So so we we said, you know, there's Esau, uh, Jacob, and all of his sort of trickery and all of his plots and plans and deceits. And it happens to him with his father-in-law Laban. And now now we see the sons, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as we say. And, and 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 the sons are... You know, as much as we don't want our, 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 our boys to be like us, they, they end up being like us. Well, what's their deceit? In this case, notice, they, they use the, the, the holy sign of circumcision for their unholy purpose. God gave circumcision 
as a sign of the covenant. Back to Genesis 17. It's the sign that you belonged to the people of God, that God set you out from the world, from the nations, to be holy and separate and distinct, and a people that he blesses by his grace alone. The sign of circumcision was meant to be that. It's just like for baptism, uh, with us for ba- uh, with baptism. It's meant to be the outward sign that we've crossed over from death to life. It's the sign that we've been washed from our sins, that we are now pure in Christ, and that we are different, and that we are distinct. But they use this holy sign for their unholy, deceitful practice and purpose. It sounds like, you know, these are really zealous evangelists. You know, they, these guys want to see more people come into the church, right? They want to see, they, they want to see the, uh, the, the, the tents of the camp of the righteous just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, as long as you're willing to be circumcised like us, we'll become one people. Now, they've got a plan. They've got a plan. This would be like, in our time and place, this, this would be like using the Bible to get people in and then to trick them and to take their money. I mean, we don't see that in our, in our age, do we? No one does that. No, no, no one ever uses the Bible uh, to, to get people to come and to promise them, you know, whatever it might be, pie in the sky, health, wealth, prosperity, and they take all their money. I mean, we've never seen that before. Many of us come from those kind of churches, right? Using God's holy things for your own personal unholy ambition. And so the, the results of this mass circumcision, of course, was pain. And so they're sore on the third day. And they murder every single male. This is not just retribution. This is not justice. This is, eye, uh, 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 this is not eye for eye. This is not the kind of justice that God sets up in his word. When you sin, you deserve justice. No, this is a massacre. This is unholy. This is ungodly. This is unjust or unjust. They plunder the city. They take the possessions. They take the kids. They take the wives of Shechem. They've just done what Shechem did. They see and they take. Lots of sin here. There's lots of sin here. So, why would God include a story like this in his holy word. I mean, after all, I, I thought these Old Testament saints were, were, were saints. I thought Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these were the patriarchs, right? They, 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 they sort of walked on water. You know, they, they never sinned, I thought. I thought Hebrews 11 was the hall of faith, and these guys made that hall of fame, and you know, their, 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 their bronze bust, you know, and all their exploits are sort of in that hallway, just like at the Hall of Fame. I thought there were meant to be moral examples for us. You know, dare to be a Daniel, that kind of stuff, that kind of Old Testament stuff. Well, the story of Genesis 34 is included, along with many, many other stories. I mean, I don't have to tell you, brothers and sisters, that the Bible is full of these kinds of scoundrels and sinners. Amen? And uh, do I need to remind you that this room's full of those kind of people too? The Bible, the writers of the scriptures, under the power of the Holy Spirit, deal honestly with the stories of the people of God. This is one of the, this is one of the 
sort of the evidence is that the Bible is the word of God. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. If it was, it would never be written this way. You'd whitewash it. You'd clean it up. Everybody would be a holy saint. No, but they're not. The Bible's not like those, uh, uh, those, you know, those uh, FBI and CIA documents that every, you know, the JFK files that just got sort of released after whatever sixty years, and everybody's running to them. You know, there's like hundreds of thousands of documents, and they're going to find more details. You know, who actually killed JFK? And then you see the pictures of the of the of the documents, and like every single word is blacked out. You know, there's a couple of words, just like you know, the, you know car, you know, like a couple words that are like not classified kind of words are, are in white, you know, on white paper with black ink and everything else is blacked out. The Bible's not that. It doesn't just, it doesn't, you know, classify everything. It doesn't say, you know, here's a couple of things that you should know and the rest of the sins, you know, we'll overlook that stuff. We'll cover it up. No, the Bible doesn't do that. The point of the story of scripture is that it's God who saves sinners. The Bible isn't the message for all the do-gooders, for the select of the elect, the righteous elite, for those who think that they can help themselves. The Bible is a story of God saving sinners. That's what the Bible's about. And how and, and what greater way to illustrate that than to show their sins? To show their sins. And that's why our story is also a story of the Savior. As a story of the Savior, the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament part of the Bible, uh, involves what's called typology. Typology. A type is any person, place, or thing in the Old Testament. That's a pattern for a person, place, or thing to come in the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 14, that already way back when in the garden, before the fall, in the garden, in creation, that Adam was a type of one who was to come. That's, what's, that's a typology. Adam was a type, a pattern for one who was to come. Who's that one to come? Jesus. Well, how can it be? How can it be a pattern of Jesus if Adam's a sinner? Well, because he's a, Adam in his creation, his perfection, is a type of Jesus. But also Adam in his sins is a type. So there's positive types. There's also negative types. Adam's a type of Christ because his sin cries out for, for a true Savior, for one who truly is obedient. And so Adam represented others, just like Jesus does. Adam and Jesus are both given tests of their obedience. And both of them, what they did affects others. And so Adam disobeys and Christ obeys. Adam sins and Christ is righteous. Adam dies for his sins. Jesus dies for the sins of others. But there's also what are called negative types in the Bible. It's not just that the good stuff that people did, but it's also the bad stuff that they did can also be types. David was a king, and he was promised a son upon his throne forever. And so, positively, he's a type of a true king to come. How is David a negative type? 
He's a bad, he's, he's a bad dad, isn't he? He's a sinner. He's a sinner. And so all of his sins are crying out for a real king, a true king, a righteous king, a godly king, a holy king. The same thing here with Jacob. And so we see here the story of the Savior because Jacob is a type of Jesus. Jacob is a type of Jesus to come because when we see Jacob and all of his sins, our story, our text, the story of Scripture cries out for the righteous seed of the woman who was to come to crush the serpent's head. Uh, a, a, a righteous son of promise who's going to come, who's going to be unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not going to be a sinner. All these negative stories, all these sins, they, they all cry out for someone unlike us, different than us, who can save sinners like us. But also, our story is a story of the Savior in this way. I want you to zero in just for a moment or two on which brothers did the killing here. Two of them are mentioned by name. We see Simeon, of course, but then there's someone else. Did you see that? Levi. Not the genes, okay? Who's Levi? He's, he's, the, the, line, he, he's the, the man whose family line and family tree is going to do what in particular again? What special task? the priests of the Old Testament. So here, so he, Levi, here is the line of the priest, the man who's the, you know, the great, great, great grandfather, the, the patriarch of the priests. In the days of Aaron and after the book of Exodus is, is written in the story of the Exodus, the, the priesthood is set up and, and Levi is the root of that family. Levi, the line of those who were, who were going to slay Animal sacrifices for the sins of the people of God. He is slaying men in his own sins. Levi, the line of those who would pray to the Lord on behalf of the other people. That's what a priest did. They sacrificed and they prayed for them. Here he is not praying for his enemies. Not doing what Jesus does. Here's Levi, the line of those who would care for the widows and orphans in Israel. That was, again, part of their task. You would bring your animal sacrifice and they would, you know, they, they would sort of fillet it up and part of it was sacrifice and part of it the priest got to eat and other parts of it were given out to the poor. Uh, and widows, and orphans, and strangers, and aliens, and those just passing through. And so that was a part of their task as well. But here is Levi creating widows and orphans by murdering their husbands and fathers. Levi is a line of those who themselves would be sinners and had to offer up sacrifices for themselves. Levi and his line of priests to come then point us to another priest to come. In Levi's bad example, we find Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 7, you want to turn there, you can't, I'll, I'll just read it though. Hebrews chapter 7 uh, at verse 23 says this. 
The former priests were many in number. Here's Hebrews, New Testament, writing about the ancient priesthood. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So they were human beings. They were sinners. They died. There are lots of them, right? One, a priest would raise up, he would die, and someone would take his place. The, the whole family line. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, meaning he's been raised from the dead. He's alive. Consequently, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? He, he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind? Here's what he says. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, completely the opposite of Levi. He, Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, there's that promise that God gave in the Old Testament of a priest to come. That word of the oath, which came later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In other words, we have a story here of great sin, but we have a story here of an gra- even greater Savior. Because our story is a story that points us to a great reversal to come. A great reversal to come in which all these, uh, uh, these priests and their great-great-great-grandfather Levi himself and all these huge sins that they committed here, he's committing murder and, 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 and lying and so forth and, and even uh, desecrating God's holy sacrament of, of circumcision. But yet, God turns this to good. He uses Levi and that line of the priest to turn to turn things towards the Savior, because through them the Savior comes. Through them Jesus comes. And so that Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the fullness of, of all of God's promises, they're all yes and amen in him, that Jesus is, is here this morning and he speaks to you. And Jesus says to you, whatever you thought, whatever lustful thoughts you've had, whatever sinful, sexual, deviant thoughts you've had, whatever anger and murder you thought, whatever you have done, you can be a murderer, you can be one, uh, you can be a, uh, a one who is in, engrossed. Your life is consumed with sexual sin. But Jesus says that he has the power to save you from those sins. If he could use these people, if he could save these kinds of people, he certainly can save people like you and me. Jesus says to you and to me, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives life. He offers life to those who are dead in their sins. He offers to change us from the inside out ever so slowly, little by little, 
to help us, to enable us to die to our sins. He doesn't promise to to you and to me that when we come to Jesus that he takes away our sins in the sense that we never struggle with them. No, he forgives them. But in this life, we're still going to struggle. We're still going to sin. We're still going to fall. We're still going to be tempted. We're still going to give in. We're still going to not want to give in. At other times, we are going to want to give in. But Jesus promises that when you come to him, he gives you his Holy Spirit, and little by little, he makes you new. And so no matter how difficult the story or how strange the story, it's a story that speaks to you and to me as difficult and strange people, right? Sinners. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Let's come to him this morning. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of life and liberty from sin. We ask now that you would pour out your spirit upon us to to hear your words, Lord, to turn from ourselves, to turn to Jesus, and to find true life in him. Whatever our sin might be, Lord, whatever the the struggles that we are feeling and, and sensing and having, whatever the world is saying to us, and we're giving into it, Lord, may your power to free from sin be greater. Work in our hearts, we pray. Help us. Strengthen us. And we ask, Heavenly Father, as we come now to the Lord's Supper, that uh, you would use this tangible uh, bread and wine, this tangible means of, of, of your grace to, to impress upon us that you are the God who saves. That we don't save ourselves. As we pray this morning, there's no health in us. There's, there's nothing in us, Lord, that's, that's, that's good. All good comes from you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's turn together in our hymnals in response to what God says and prepare our hearts and minds and lives to receive the Lord's Supper together. Uh, We're going to sing together 498.